Yes. First, this is not good news. Paris Swain, Liberty Writers News, reports the challenge has been officially accepted. North Korean state-run latest of many news agencies reported moments ago that North Korea will turn up the heat and not just a carry out. Good morning, church. The, earlier this summer that I was praying through what God would kind of lead us through this, this fall in a conversation. The conversation that I believe is just vital, is so important for us to understand as we are the people of God in the 21st century is the conversation about what is truth? How do we come to an understanding of the truth? And how do we hold that in a way that's gentle enough with people that they can be with us and join us with, in with that as well? Jesus talked about being full of grace and truth. Those are important things to Jesus. They're important things to us as a church. And so today we begin a seven-week conversation that's one of the most relevant conversations because this is something more and more in our culture is struggling to believe in at all, that there is any kind of absolutes to to stand our footing on. There is any kind of truth that we can examine and we can come to believe and put into effect in our lives. There's a lot of reasons for why that is, why we're now in an era where uh, people don't believe in truth as much, or at least they say, well, I've got my truth and you've got yours, but we don't really need to get into a conversation about that because we really just need to learn to love one another in the midst of the different truths that we have. One of those things comes, goes back to the modern worldview. The modern era began about the time of the Enlightenment. The Reformation came in about that season. It was a change of a lot, a season of a lot of change in our world. And during that time, the scientific method came into vogue, and, and all of a sudden we realized we can come to truth by just testing it enough. If we have enough hypotheses, we keep testing the truths of the hypotheses that we come forward with, we can come to a better understanding of the universe. The modern worldview did a lot for Christianity. It grew a lot, but over time we began to realize that in many ways we were able to explain away God because science provided us everything we needed to know and see. Now we didn't need to depend on God for the rain because, well, we can explain the process of precipitation and how that takes place. And so in some ways the modern era kind of took God out of the picture. But we became more certain about certain truths in our world. But that's changed in recent times, especially the last half centuries or so. Uh, Because when when it comes to science, I'm not an expert in these things. There are many of you that can know this and share it better than I can. But even in the world of science, a lot of confusion and unknowns came into existence. It was quantum theory and quantum mechanics that made us realize that Things aren't interacting as we would have expected them to. And we've come to new understandings about all that since then, but it kind of crushed in some ways our understanding of progress and the assumption that we would just move forward and be able to understand everything through science. But it's also true of our institutions. Over the last half century, we trust much less in our institutions, from the Watergate scandal to the perjury and impeachment of Bill Clinton. And we can go on and on about the different political scandals that have hurt our trust in institutions. Um, and who can we trust to give us news in our world? Every news station we know comes from a point of view and shares and tries to align us with a certain perspective. How, how can we trust the facts that are coming there? We assume that everything we read is written as propaganda to move us with a hidden bias someplace that the writer has. We live in an era where some of the most famous hashtags are fake news and alternative facts. And even the world of sports hasn't been safe from this trend, right? It was the mid-90s, I remember growing up, and my heroes were these home run hitters, guys like Rafael Palmero, guys like, like Barry Bonds, and we come to find out a little bit later that even though they had said uh, under oath that they hadn't been involved in any kind of performance-enhancing drugs, we come to find out that many of them were. 
It's a disappointment, and it leads us to question so many things in our world. In fact, this year, it's pretty amazing what's happening in Major League Baseball if you're following along. There are more home runs. We're on a pace for more than what happened in the mid to late 90s. When we hear that, how many of us really think that that's because, well, people are just getting better all of a sudden? No, we're all conspiracy theorists, right? That's the norm now. And so we assume that something must have tinkered with the ball to make it travel further this year. Something is there to explain this because we've seen too many instances where it hadn't been skill that's been the difference. It's been some kind of drug or something else. Think about track and field, right? Our presumption is if there's a result that advances any better, it's probably because not hard work, but because they've taken something to make them better. But this isn't just out there. It's not just about institutions or the government or news. This is true about us as well. Because in some ways, social media is our own personal propaganda site, isn't it? I mean, it's our way of putting forth the facts as we like to see them. We crop the pictures just the right way from the right angle. We share the best of what's going on in our world. And our profiles become propaganda. They become their own fake news sites, don't they? And we compare the highlight reels of others to our own lives. And social media often leads us to a place where we're more depressed than when we got on in the first place. The belief in truth is one of the greatest casualties of the last half century. And many of us, most in our world, have given up on coming to any kind of truth that's out there. Because everywhere we look, truth is being curated to be told in a certain way. So in our community groups, this conversation over the next seven weeks, you're going to have a chance to continue this conversation on several important topics about what the simple truth is. We want to go back to the Bible. We want to land ourselves in some places along with what Scripture says. And we want to have conversation about how do we begin to live that out more in our lives. We're going to talk this morning about the Bible and the simple truth about the Bible. Next week, we'll talk about humans and what's true about us. The week after, we'll talk about God's grace, and then Jesus and the Holy Spirit, about baptism and about our mission as the people of God that we're called on. And each week we're going to talk about a simple truth, and we're going to engage in, in groups and conversation. And if you're not yet part of those, one of those groups, please let me know by the end of the day. We'd love to help you find a, a way to do that. Or Keith Maloney would be another great person to talk to to find your place so we can continue and not let this be just a one-way conversation. We want this to be a true church conversation in the coming weeks. Let's pray as we open our time in the Word this morning. Our God, our Father, we come before you today, we humble ourselves, we bow before you because you are the God who's above all gods. You know how the, inner, how the, the universe works, God. And we admit this morning humbly that we don't fully know. We seem to get glimpses from time to time, God, and we gain knowledge and, and, and then we come to almost pride, God, to think that what we believe is the truth about everything. But God, our prayer during this season, during these next few weeks is that you would guide us into all truth. That's your promise through your Holy Spirit, God as the Spirit would continue to guide us and remind us to what Jesus said and what the truth truly is. And so, God, I pray this morning as we look at the Bible that you'd lead us toward that truth. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts, that we might be led more in line with your truth. In the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to the simple truth about the Bible, I want to address the topic of truth for a moment. Most of us have basically grown up in life assuming that we are right about basically everything all the time, right? I mean, otherwise, if we were wrong about it, we would change our mind. And so, of course, we're right as far as we can come in tune with the truth. Our memories we think to be true, our grasp of the facts we think to be true. But as infallible human beings, it's important to realize that all of us are wrong about something, right? Hopefully, at least all of us can raise our hands this morning and admit that. We're infallible. We don't see things fully as they are. 
We don't yet see God face to face. In fact, we're not just wrong about facts. We're wrong about what it means to be wrong. Because being wrong is a vital part of the process of growth and change and maturity in our lives. At one point, we believe certain things, and we've come to see things in a different way. And part of admitting something was wrong is coming to see things in a better light. Error should not be an embarrassment. It's inevitable. I have no doubt that I have probably preached error in this pulpit before because I'm not perfect and I don't fully see God as He is. I long for the day where that will be true. By the way, it's okay to say to that this morning if you agree with that, right? But to be wrong is to believe something is true when it is false. Or conversely, to believe something is false when it is true. But here's where we, what we fail to understand about being wrong. Here's where you need to listen closely. There is no experience of being wrong. There is an experience of realizing that we are wrong, of course. But by definition, there cannot be any particular feeling associated with simply being wrong. Indeed, the whole reason it's impossible to be wrong is that while it's happening, you don't believe that you're wrong. You're oblivious to it. It's like that old cartoon, the Roadrunner cartoon. You remember this, right? Coyote would always kind of go off the cliff. He didn't know exactly that he was about to fall until he fell. But the truth of the situation is he's off the cliff. He's off a firm foundation. A lot of us, being wrong is is just like that. We don't know it yet, but it's going to hurt when we figure it out. So I should revise myself a bit this morning. It does feel like something to be wrong. It feels like being right. This is the problem of error blindness. That whatever falsehoods we live with that each of us currently believes are necessarily invisible to us or we would come to a different conclusion. And all of this should lead us to a place of humility. Because we are all wrong about many different things, but right now we're blind to that fact. We can't fully see that. And let's face it, some of the most dangerous and worst things that happen in our world happen as a result of people who could not be convinced that they're wrong. In fact, a lot of the fundamentalism, the, the, the violence that comes from those quarters, from other religions, is because of a certainty about being right, when in actuality, history proves that often we're wrong in those situations. The church was wrong, for instance, in the way of its certainty led us to treat scientists like Galileo during the Copernican Revolution. We were so certain that the sun revolved around the earth that we banished Galileo to house arrest and we silenced others as well. And and the church was wrong. The church was wrong in its support of slavery by using its certainty of how to interpret Paul's commands about slavery. Slaves, obey your masters. We used that in a wrong way, didn't we? We didn't understand it at the time, but we've come to see it that way. We were wrong. We've seen how certainty and groupthink, like I said, can lead to an increase in suicide bombings from those who are convinced that they're right, but it leads to tragedy on the other side. Certainty is a great feeling to have, isn't it? When you know you're right, it's one of the best feelings we can muster, but it can have devastating effects. Here's the truth about the Bible. The Bible never calls us to certainty. The Bible calls us to faith. There's a difference between those two things. Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 11. It's the Hall of Faith passage that tells a lot about the truths and uh, all throughout these characters, these characters who live by faith and what happened to them. It's a great chapter to study. The verse 1 talks about this idea of faith and really grounds this whole uh, 
first part that I've been sharing with you. It says there, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, some translations, yours might read this way. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. It's important to understand what that kind of certainty is or assurance. It's not talking about empirical data that can be proven. We can't prove that God exists. We take that belief by faith. In fact, faith is believing in spite of the fact that we can't know for sure. So Hebrews 11 isn't referring to a kind of certainty where we can prove it and we can identify it. Scientific method boils it down to that. No, at some point, we're going to have to have a faith beyond what we can see. And Hebrews 11 tells the story of lots of characters in Scripture who did just that. Faith is not being certain about things. It's what you do when you're not certain about things. Faith is coming to trust in something you cannot prove. We just don't know a lot of things that we are convinced of. But some of those things we're convinced of are things that are worthy of putting our faith in. So what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to believe something? What I'm about to share with you is really foundational. It's key for the entire series I want to share with you. For many Christians, belief or faith is about assenting to a series of propositional statements. Most churches have these on their website, right? We believe as a church that Jesus is the Son of God, correct? That's a confession we made in our baptism. I believe that to be true. It's a propositional statement. We have a list of others. I believe that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected from the dead. That's a propositional statement. I believe that the Holy Spirit resides inside every believer, etc. and so forth. And if we're honest, most of us believe that we're saved by getting all of the right propositional statements aligned in our mind. But here's the reality. If we say we believe something, but it makes no difference in our lives, I would question if we really believe it in the first place. You remember what James says about this? It's actually in the book of James he writes. James is the the brother of Jesus. He's a leader in the early church. He writes this letter, and this is what he says about faith and about actions or about works. Listen to this. This is James 2, beginning in verse 14. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. See what it says? The demons have pretty good propositional belief statements. They understand the way the world works. They understand who God is. They can ace a test if given to them about the facts of who God is probably more clearly than we can because they have an understanding of the spiritual world that we don't fully have. The difference is they, they don't align their lives, they don't align their actions with the truth they know to be true in the universe. People often think about beliefs, beliefs as if they're mental objects just kind of floating around in our head, existing independently from an embodied life in the physical world. And if this were the case, you could presumably have a belief that could have no impact on the actions that you live out in your life. But let me put this as simply as I can. Your beliefs are revealed by your actions rather than by your words. Your true beliefs are revealed by your actions, rather than by your words. Let me give you a few examples. 
I can make a case this morning that I believe in generosity. I believe it's something God commands us to, and I personally believe that generosity is the stance I have toward life. But do you want to know what you would need to do if you wanted to find out if I'm a generous person or not? Don't ask me that question. Go talk to my CPA about it. Because my CPA has the data. And often subconsciously, I can trick myself into thinking I'm a a generous person. But you'd have a better shot knowing if I was generous by looking at my bank statements or talking to my CPA or looking at my calendar to see the ways that I serve and spend my time in that way. We trick ourselves and we easily trick others when it comes to these kind of things. Or take it this way. I could tell you and I can make the case that I love Holly. I love my wife. But the way to find out if I love Holly is not what I think about it. The way to ask if I love Holly is to talk to Holly and, the, and she'll be able to tell you one way or another if that's true or not. And the way she decides that, it's not based on any statement I made a long time ago or even that I said that this morning to her. The way she decides if she's loved is by the actions that I live out, by the priorities that I give, by the commitments that I make. Same thing's true about my kids. I can make the case that I care deeply for my kids and they're a priority in my life. Please don't ask my kids that question, right? I, I think that's true. I try to give my best energies to them. But isn't that scary to think that What's true about us and what we believe isn't best told by ourselves. It's told by those who are around us, who know even better than we do because we trick ourselves, don't we? We put the best face forward. But the reality of our lives is shown by our actions rather than anything that we say. You see the point I'm trying to make? I mean, you can believe every fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. You can memorize a set of beliefs and parrot them back to someone. But if those beliefs are not borne out in your actions, I would suggest you don't really believe what you think you believe. Because your actions are the greatest determining factor to indicating what you really believe. This is why James says, faith without works is dead. He's not preaching some kind of works righteousness that says if you do all these things, then you'll be saved. What he's saying is, in effect, if you say you believe things, propositional beliefs, and they're in your head, it doesn't work itself out in any action, I would question if you believe those things in the first place. The demons believe, but they don't align their actions with what they know to be true. You tracking this morning with what I'm saying? This is the basis for this series. What we believe is not what we say. It's not what we would ace a test on. What we believe is borne out in the priorities, the values, and the actions that we show in our lives. Okay, so now I want to move to simple truth number one. Talking about the Bible this morning. And the simple truth is this. The Bible tells the truth. The Bible tells the truth. I'm convinced of this much. But I'm convinced of this because of very different reasons than the reasons you may have heard from Christians in the past. As I researched for this sermon and I talked about and and looked for the reliability of the Bible or the believability of the Bible or the truthfulness of the Bible, most of the reasons that are cited on those sites or places that I looked are talking about the consistency or credibility of the text. Is it reliable in what we have? Some use words like inerrant, infallible, and historically reliable. And their goal is to prove that this is what was handed down. This is actually what God wanted us to have. And and, and the documents that we have in our Bible fits with the scholarship that goes all the way back to the original scrolls. And that is an important conversation. I I can tell you, I believe in the reliability of the Bible. I, I trust that this book points us perfectly to Jesus. And that's the goal that the the writers of Scripture set out. So I could have that class. That's a class for another day I would love to teach. There's great reasons to believe in the reliability of the Scriptures that we have. 
But that's not the most compelling reason why I believe the Bible tells the truth. When I say the Bible tells the truth, I'm not making a claim that we have to distrust claims from science or archaeology or psychology or any other discipline that competes with the claims of Scripture. I find no reason to make enemies out of science as we seek to be people of faith. When I say the Bible tells the truth, I mean that the Bible tells the truth. In other words, the Bible refuses to be propaganda. The Bible refuses to do the things that cause us today to distrust the news, institutions, baseball statistics, and social media. We are so used to propaganda that we believe that we never get the full truth out of anything. The Bible does not paint the biblical characters with a brush any different than the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from these characters. And sometimes, I wish it wasn't so honest. What do I mean? Well, if I had written the Bible, I would have written it differently. If I were writing a text that people for thousands of years would read to understand who God is, there's some selections and editing I would have done to leave some things out. I would have left out Moses' anger and murder early on in the story. I would have left out the account of King David. Yes, King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, who knocks out seven of the Ten Commandments in one weekend. Come on, leave that stuff out. Not a good marketing job. I would have left out the fact that Paul, who writes over half the New Testament, was a religious terrorist who oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, before he got to writing the book that we call the Word of God. I would have left out Peter's denial of Jesus. Probably would have left out pretty much the whole book of Judges. Would have left out the regressive and violent texts about God commanding the slaughter of innocent women and children where they enter the promised land or as they do. I would have left out the details about slaves obeying their masters because, boy, is that hard to describe today. These sordid details are not effective recruitment tools. What purpose do they serve? Or what about the places where the Bible actually recounts the absence of God? That's not helpful if I want to trust in this God who's going to show up when I need him most. You realize this? There's a testimony about God's presence in Scripture all throughout. But there are entire books, there are entire chapters, that basically their job is to testify to the fact that God is absent. Now, if you're doing the marketing job for a new religion, you don't talk about this God and call him the God above all gods and show all the times where he's absent. No, you put forward the points where he's present, where he's active. But have you read Psalm 88? Don't put that in there. You read Psalm 73, Psalm 137? Psalm 137 about dashing the infants' heads against the rocks? God, would you please do this? That's the prayer. Don't put that prayer in Scripture. Or what about the book of Jonah? I mean, the prophets are supposed to be these people that are the people of God, right? Who do the right thing. We think Jonah's about a story about God's salvation, about a guy from a fish, but it's not about that at all. It's really about how the prophet of God despised God's grace and didn't want his enemies to get it. It's a story about racism and nationalism. We try to make it a story about God's salvation and forget the fact that these are stories that are problematic. How about Ecclesiastes and Job? Those are problematic stories. And who thought it was a good idea in the first century to make women the, the people who testify to the resurrection? In first century Rome, women would, their, their testimony would not have been allowed in a court of law to be anything useful. I'm not saying that's the case today, but my point is you don't put women as the first people who testify to the Scripture in a context where that testimony will be thrown out. It just doesn't make any sense. And if I'd written the Bible, it's not just those things I would have 
excluded. There's things I would have included that aren't included in here either. I mean, don't you want to know sometimes some clear checklists to know this is what I do when I'm safe and I know I've done what God wants me to, right? God, how am I saved? Here's a six-step list, right? We have to do a lot of work to try to figure out that list when you read through Scripture. You've got to read the whole book and you've got to try to figure it out. And we disagree on this. What if God had just put in the back of the Bible uh, some boxes with some, uh, a checklist and if you do these things, you know you're good? That would have been a lot nicer. Or what about how we worship together, right? Here's the 10-step list that you need to make sure in every worship service you check these boxes. If God had just laid that out in whatever that book that he left out was, that would have been real nice. Or, or what about determining God's will? How many of us, we'd love to know what God wants us to do. God, if you would just tell us, if you would let us know, we'll go. We'll obey your will. But there's no checklist. It's a three-step list to this is how you determine the will of God. There are things I would have included if I'd written this book. And for me, this is all proof of the reliability of Scripture. Because if you were going to create a religion out of thin air, this would not be the result. This is not the propaganda that gets people to believe in a God who's perfect and beyond scrutiny. The Bible refuses to be propaganda. In fact, you can trust the Bible because the Bible tells the truth more honestly than any other history book, any newscast, or any social media profile. The Bible does not crop selfies. The Bible doesn't show us just the highlight reel of all these characters. It tells the truth, nothing but the truth. Our culture is so good at sniffing out the artificial. We know when we're being played. We are conspiracy theorists. Conspiracies have become the norm in our culture. We know authenticity when we see it. But the Bible tells the truth. I'm not ashamed to admit that our favorite Bible characters messed up big time. At least the Bible isn't. It's not a shame to admit that God is often silent when we most want him to speak and be clear. It's not a shame to admit that the people of God doubted. I'm amazed by this. I've mentioned this before, but I can't get this out of my head. Matthew 28. The Great Commission's coming. Jesus is about to leave them. He's been resurrected from the dead. He appears to 500. And guess what? There are some present with the resurrected Jesus in front of them. And it says there in Matthew 28 that some doubted. I mean, what does it take for us to believe when a guy raises from the dead to believe this is who it is? But doubt is present even in that moment after the resurrection as the church is about to get launched. It's not a shame to admit the Bible that some things are too good to be true, but the people of God never are. And as I've thought about it, and I realized the Bible that Thomas Jefferson constructed by cutting out the miraculous portions that were hard for people to understand in an Enlightenment era, and I think about the one that I would have written, I realize that those books aren't nearly as good as the one we've been handed. Because this book has room for imperfect people to find a place in the story. This story gives us room to express our doubts and not be kicked out for doing it. This story gives us room for all kinds of things that the Bible I would have manicured would never have given space for. It's the complicated parts of Scripture. It's seeming contradictions and it's doubts and it's testimony to God's absence that are the very things that make this book more reliable than any other book you could read. The contradictions aren't the problems. They're the cracks that allow us into this story to find our place. But each week during the series, my goal is not to state a truth and just to proclaim it boldly. It's to get to this question. 
question I want us to address each week in our group conversation is this. If that's true, then what difference does that make in my life? If we make this propositional statement about the Bible or about humans or about so on and so forth, what difference does that make? Because a belief is not a belief because we carry it in our heads around. A belief is a belief if it actually shapes our lives. If it doesn't make a difference in our lives, then maybe we don't really believe it. So here's the challenge I want to leave you with to continue in discussion in your groups this week as you continue on. If the Bible is comfortable telling the truth about the doubts and struggles of the people of God, which is what we've seen today, then why are we so uncomfortable expressing those things in our own lives? If the Bible's comfortable telling the whole truth about all these characters and God can still use them, then what makes us unwilling to do the same thing with the people that we live with in our lives? And too often in church, we don't do what the Bible does. We don't admit what's really going on. We don't feel safe to admit our doubts. We don't feel safe to admit our sins. We don't feel safe to be less than perfect. Church, this ought to be the safest place for you to express any of those things in the entire world. That group that you associate with at the health club, it should be safer here to express those things in there. And that group that you have that book club with that's outside, it ought to be safer here to share those things. And see, that so often, because of our experiences, it's not, is it? It becomes a place that we have to just kind of act as if everything's okay. My suggestion is, if we are a back-to-the-Bible movement, we're people who want to put into action what this Bible is, which is what we've always said, then it means we've got to reflect this in our own lives and in our church. That's the comfort in these stories. I mean, if I had written the Bible, and then I read that thing, you know what I'd think? I'd think, that story doesn't have any place for me in it because I'm not as perfect as Moses was fact that those stories are told about Moses remind me I have a place here. And that guy who doubts along with Thomas, the one who doubts the resurrection, Thomas needs to see his hands. The fact that he doubts and is welcome into those disciples, that's a reminder that I'm welcome in the midst of my doubts and my struggles. When I think about Paul writing half the New Testament, anyone who wants to say, I can't be used by God, let me tell you, there's a story in here that reminds you. There's nothing you can do that cannot be redeemed by God And you might be the very person that he does the most with. I'm amazed by this book because it tells the truth. It's such a simple truth, isn't it? The Bible tells the truth, but it's really hard to live out in our lives. And that's the way it is. With most simple truths, we can say them in our heads, but the question is, will we live them out in our lives? So this week, as you engage with your groups, that's the challenge I want to give you. Bring all the questions you have about the book Bring all the contradictions. Bring all the stories you've always wanted to ask about and have a conversation about those things. But even more so, don't let it stay at this place of cerebral learning, right? Ask the question, how do we make this group over the next seven weeks a safe place to do what the Bible does? To admit what's really going on, to confess whatever it is, to be received and welcomed into the transformation that God wants to do in every single one of our lives. We do that this week. We engage those conversations. Can we just do what the Bible does for us. That's the challenge I want to give to you. Again, if you're not one of the, part of one of these groups, I want to challenge you. Come talk to me, talk to Keith. We'd love to find a space for you to have this conversation. But I want to close with prayer this morning as we end our time in the Word. Father, I thank you that you didn't allow me to do this on my own, putting this book together. 
or any one of us in this room, God. That what you handed on to us is exactly what you wanted us to have for the reasons that we shared today. I thank you that you didn't crop this book in just the right light to make it look like everybody you touch becomes perfect in an instant. Grateful that your grace for Paul is the same grace that you offer to me and it's sufficient, God, no matter the struggle that we're walking through. I thank you that you had this idea for a church one day, God. A church that would receive people and welcome them where they are and and join each one, God, and ask the Spirit of God to be at work to transform us more and more into your image. God, thank you for this idea of the church that gets to be your future put on display in the present of how you desire this world to be. God, my prayer is for the groups and for the hosts of conversations this week that they can create a safe place, God, for that to happen. We More and more, God, we can be a church that reflects the truth of how you put this book together. I pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.